From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. You want to ask yourself the musical question, what do The Grateful Dead, Jay Leno, Sting, and Art Blakey have in common? Well, their lives have all been made better by my guest, Brantford Marcellus, who's turned to scoring film. He's contributed to film scores, certainly, in the past and won the Drama Desk Award for his work scoring the revival of Fences. Gosh, almost 13 years ago now, I guess. I still think about his terrific album, one of my favorites, celebrating, I guess, his 35th anniversary this year, Random Abstract. His newest effort, for which he's joining us, is the score to the George Wolfe-directed film, Rust on a Life of by Rustin Branford. It's a thrill to have you here. Thank you for doing this. It's great to hear you again, my man. One of the things we just were chatting very briefly before we got started about this score is that it's really propulsive. And whenever Bayard enters, you first of all, you play him into the movie. You give him an entrance, you give him a theme. And then so often when he's on screen, we get to hear either bass or drums because this, this sense of movement is really key to who he is as a character. I want to talk to you about where that comes from. George is, uh, has very strong opinions about music. One of the things is like almost always like no strings. I don't want to hear strings. I want to hear either jazz or blues or sometimes R&B. When a lot of what I think are, are standard movie techniques are kind of taken away, like the opening scene, the show us your power. I mean, the, the only thing I thought of, I tried everything and nothing worked. And then I just thought of a driving big band with a walking bass line. One thing that I learned about uh, trying to play jazz in general is uh, that Art Blakey taught me the biggest problem with what I was doing when I was younger is that it lacked propulsion. And I had to figure out that propulsion had nothing to do with volume, but it had to do with this. I really, it's almost impossible to explain. You have to figure out what it is. But if you listen to, to, to big bands in the 30s, they sound just like James Brown's band without the electric instruments. And the thing that makes it work is that all of the musicians have this sense of propulsion. So I was able to, to use the guys in, in Winton's big band, who also know how to do that, to create that opening scene. Rustin is a, a force for social good, but he's also a progressive force. He's moving that world into the present and into the future and that propulsion that we're talking about, that momentum, that constant sense of movement, that restlessness that he has as a character is present whenever he's on screen via the score. You see it and then you write to it. It's one of those things. I, it's a lesson that I learned when I was working on Fences. When Kenny Leon hired me, I was in the middle of multiple things as I often find myself. So I took it upon myself to reread the play and then write the music. And I sent it to him and he called me back and said, what the hell is this? I said, it's the music. He says, man, you haven't seen the play yet. I said, man, I got, I got the play. I read it. He says, no, that's your version of the play. You haven't seen this version of the play. So uh, you need to you know, get your ass up here. And so I looked at my schedule and said, I got one day. And I actually watched 
Viola and Denzel perform, and it brought me to tears, first of all. So nothing I was writing brought me even close to that. So I said, yeah, you're right. I learned my lesson. So I never try to write anything for a movie unless I can see it first, unless it is required. Like if if you have the actors singing or pretending to sing, like Ma Rainey, you had to have a lot of that music pre-recorded because the actors had to mimic to that. But other than that, I I, I write based on what I see. God, that's so interesting, because I guess I would have thought just knowing you to be, among many other things, a student of history, that that idea in the abstract would just be sort of keep this thing on its feet. Because it's got, we got to feel like it's moving when he's moving. And I just thought that it, it feels really keyed into the essentials of, of jazz, which is to say, we, we know what the count is. We know there's a count. We know there's percussion to suggest almost kind of a dynamic inner thought. All these things are happening when he's on screen. If you look at pop charts from the 60s, there's rock bands on there, there's country musicians, there's R&B and soul music. And some of the soul music, for instance, Jackie Wilson's song, Baby Workout, which I think was in the 50s, that was performed with full big band. So there were a lot of songs that were still the big, you still heard the big band sound, whether it was a Hawaii Five-O's TV theme or Mission Impossible with Lalo Schifrin. So the big band was still around and the 60s presented all sorts of musical possibilities. Uh, Music was kind of wide open, even though the society was not in it seems in modern times the inverse has happened. The society is wide open, but the music seems very constrained and, and very limited. I don't know why that is, but it's just an, an observation. So I already had that going for me. I knew it was 1964, and I could borrow anything five years prior to one year after and kind of incorporated, but I still needed to see the energy that George and the actors collectively were bringing to before I could really write down, write what I thought it was. I wanted to see it first. It's the treatment we're talking to Professor Branford Marcellus. He's taking a step away from his teaching duties. You're killing me, <laughs> Elvis. Carolina, You're killing me. At North Carolina Central to score the film Rustin. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. And it's so funny as you were talking about this, because there's one point I even got fooled because there's like a, a bass drum and a horn. I go, oh, that's wait a second. And it turns out it's Junior Walker's shotgun, which <laughs> in a lot of ways is, is what you're talking about. It's big band charts for an R&B song. And even in that period, it felt slightly like a throwback. But the energy is such that in this way, it feels timeless. And I would say the same thing about this score, but that count, that beat, that boom, boom, you're getting like the, the kick drum before you're getting anything else in that. That feels like it's it's consonant with what you're talking about wanting to do with the score. Yeah, one of the things that's funny with George is he sometimes becomes overly concerned with historical accuracy because uh, <laughs> Shotgun was recorded in, or released in 1966. And George said, I don't know if we can use it. It was 66. And we had a similar thing and Ma Rainey, when he was talking about this song was recorded then and it should be this, I said, you realize, of course, of the hundreds or millions of people that are going to watch this, you're the only person who knows that, so you'll be okay. And he didn't buy into it on the first movie. But in this one, I was able to convince him that that was by far the most effective song for the scene. 
and that I'm willing to bet that there's no one that's going to call him and say, this is a lie. That was two years later because movies, in fact, are telling stories. Movies are not telling truths historically. They may tell truths emotionally, but this is not a documentary. It's a film, and he finally went for it, and I was very happy for me and for him. I think, too, and I wonder if this is one of the things that interested you about that is in his, especially in the way that Coleman Domingo plays him, he's kind of a musical figure. I mean, he's almost scat singing in the way he speaks to people. And and that becomes, too, I think, part of the, the texture of the oral texture of the movie. It's definitely a Southern thing, but uh, he wasn't from the South. But it's it's certainly a Black thing, that sing-songy kind of, I mean, I grew up in New Orleans, man. Everybody talks that way. But he has this certain kind of cadence in this, this uh, sing-songy cadence, along with his own moral certitude, which makes it quite quite extraordinary. I was wondering, what, if you remember your your first meeting with, with George, I'm guessing you probably maybe even knew him from New York in the 80s and 90s, that you'd met him at, at some other point before you guys worked together. He was doing a lot of stuff at the public, and Wenton and I lived on Bleecker Street, six blocks from the public. So we would go to the public whenever we could. We meet him. We just see him in places and have like small conversations, nothing in depth. So when he when he called me to work on one of the films, I think it was Henrietta Lacks. I was like, oh, George, man, I've seen him in a while. This is great. So we just kind of picked up where we left off. And there's also even in his plays, you talking about the public, I just immediately flashed back to the Colored Museum. And that is way it's kind of musical, too. And a lot of the stuff he did on stage was musical without actually having music cues in it. That's his thing. Cadence. Cadence is his thing. He's all about cadence. And he finds a way to get the actors to achieve that. Well, some of them come with it naturally, but the ones that don't, he he has a cadence. He has a beat in his head. He really does. And Everybody has to be uh, has to find that pace, including me, because uh, sometimes like he's, he doesn't know really anything about music technically, but he'll tell me a story or something. And when he's finished, I'm like, what you said made total sense. And then I would rewrite what I wrote to match what what he told me. Because when you mentioned Henrietta Lacks, I guess I found myself thinking back to that. And that's that's the score that's mournful without being melodramatic. Well, it was very minimal, too. He didn't use a lot of the music in that movie. I think that uh, because he's a theatrical director, I think that the, the, the spoken word is, is kind of sacrosanct in his mind and to his ear, because everybody's ear is different. There is no universal hearing. I think the music can sometimes overpower the, 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 the melodicism of the line for him. So he tends to turn it down. But I guess I think with you too as well, and you talking about Blakey, there is always this, so often I should say in your work, a kind of an impatience <laughs> that that leads itself to being, I think, heard as, as as propulsion, and and there's also, I think, something that you you share in common with Boy Willie, I think, or or, or Bayard here. These characters who are in their way impatient and just want to get on with things, and and then that becomes a part of the the musical affect of, of what you're doing with, with George. When we were hanging back in the '80s, Elvis, you know, you remember, I'm I'm fairly consistent in that regard, though considerably more mature, I'm still fairly consistent in that thing. Yeah, I find a lot of things intriguing and I go after them. 
I'm not trying to find one or two things that identify me and just rest on that. I'm, I'm very, very intellectually restless. And, and it was clear that Bayard Rustin was intellectually restless and uh, Coleman did a great job of capturing that restlessness on film. But I think it's also too, and, and, and these, these scores you're doing with them are also different in terms of temperature. And I know what you're saying, you're taking your cues from what the film is giving you to, and your conversations with him. But I know that you will be, if you pardon the expression, literally heard. And, and you have things that you want to express in these things as well. So this is considerable maturation. You're actually like ceding leadership to somebody else. But you would do what you want to do. I mean, to a degree. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to do what I want to do that I know George will accept. Because, for instance, in one scene, I know that George ruled no strings. Well, I actually won out in one part of the movie because I told him, I'm sorry, nothing else works. I've tried everything and nothing else works. So you have to tell me what you think works. Find me a record or something. And then he says, well, fine. We can have strings <laughs> in Washington, D.C., and nowhere else. So in one scene, when, when, when Byer was being beaten up by the cops in Birmingham in the 40s, the melody that the saxophone played, I assigned it to the clarinet and wrote a woodwind ensemble around it. And he says, oh, God, no, no clarinet. Clarinet reminds me of Eastern Europe. And I said, wow, Sidney Bechet was Polish? I had no idea. And, uh, <laughs> and, then he said, and then he said in his Jewish way, well, be that as it may, no clarinet. So I changed it to saxophone, and he said, that's more like it. So I wrote it for saxophone and string ensemble. And then he didn't say anything in the session. And then when I saw it in the film, it was saxophone with no string ensemble. So yes, I will definitely try to be heard, but George has the final say. We'll take a break. We're learning that Sidney Bechet was not polished, among many other things. My guest is Branford Marcellus. His newest work with director George Wolfe is a score for the historical drama of Rustin. It's the treatment this morning comes in with us. <laughs> It's the treatment. We're learning all kinds of historical goodies with our guest, Brent from Marcellus. Finally got him to do this show after knowing him for only over 30 years. His newest work is the score for the historical drama directed by George C. Wolfe, Rustin and the Life, by Rustin, a very compressed period. You can also hear the show at kcow.com slash the treatment. But I mean, we're talking about this, this aspect of you that I think as often as not comes through in the music. And it's so funny that it took... I guess we've had this conversation for going back in the 20th century uh, of having Blakey release this in you because, I mean, I think about what you did on The Tonight Show and how that changed what talk show music is. I mean, nobody else was doing Led Zeppelin covers before you were doing that kind of stuff or doing these kinds of things and not just doing big band takes on it, but actually recalibrating these pieces to be played at three or four minute pieces. And, and, and so much of the great stuff you did during that period is about, let's go, let's keep this thing in motion. It wasn't about trying to cool things down or be precious about it. And I think that's something that's changed the way late night bands have approached playing people in and out. I think that so much of it is about vocabulary. And I don't mean it in the pejorative sense, just in the realistic sense. I actually watched uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and I heard Doc's band 
and they had a way of doing it and the way that they did it was in my mindset when we did what we did because it's like a weird cultural thing where listening to other musicians is considered antithetical to innovation and there are ridiculous stories that I can tell you conversations that well one quick one was a was a guy and I was talking to some students in Hamburg about listening to music and the guy tells this story of Joe's Avenue playing with Cannonball Adley's band and he said a musician came up and said you've been listening to this piano player and that piano player and it's very good keep it up so he packed up all of his records and he went in a new direction and I said well that's great it's clear that one part of that story is true he did go in a new direction but the part you leave out is that all of that music that he spent decades listening to cannot be unlearned. So whatever he chose to do in his future life, he took his past with him. And these students have no past at all. So what I'm asking them to do is go to the past to develop a past that will help their future. He was not moved by that, but I stand <laughs> by that. Uh you know, I stand by that, that the gateway to success in any kind of future is thorough understanding of the past. And a lot of the other bands, I mean, the guys are clearly younger than me and they don't have the same musical experiences I have. So they're going to play the music that they know that they think is more effective. And people like you who have listened to a lot of music emotionally and intellectually, most of my friends listen to music either emotionally or intellectually. The musicians, unfortunately, listen to it way more intellectually than they do emotionally, which is kind of why we're in the situation we're in now musically. But a lot of the people, they just, they do what they do based on their own musical experiences. And I had such vast musical experiences starting as a child playing clarinet and youth orchestra in Saturday mornings and then in Saturday afternoons playing with the Fairview Baptist Church jazz band directed by Danny Barker, who was the banjo player for Louis Armstrong in the 30s, 40s. So that's one of those things that was indelible. I was I was playing in an R&B band with grown men when I was 14 years old. I just did everything. I marched in the band at Southern University. I studied harmony and composition, et cetera, et cetera. I did all these different things and they all kind of over time merged together to create this kind of multifaceted identity. So I, I think that if you have musicians who have the look for it, it's not like people are missing it. Nobody's going to call them and say, oh, man, you guys know you need to go listen to some Sinatra. People accept whatever you, you put in front of them. So I think, yeah, the music is very, very different. And uh, there are reasons for that. But it's, it's going to keep going in that direction, I think. I don't think it's going to go back to what it was. My guess was cool. You're talking about the intersection between education and ambition is Professor Brandon Marsalis. His score, his newest work is the score. I can't let it go. I'm sorry. It's, it just feels too You're good. killing me. His oh newest work is his score for Rustin, directed by George Wolf on Netflix. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear case here at com slash The Treatment. What we're talking about here is just that ambition is takes us back to where we start this conversation, which is this kind of hunger for history and to give things context, but also sort of realize that history is just a fulcrum. It's moving things forward. The danger is not bringing all that information into every time you, you sit down to, to work, to write a piece of music, to play something. And which takes me to something I think is unique about the way that you work still, but also the way you score, which is to say, I can hear room tone. 
I can hear the warmth of a room and what a room does to musicianship and to instrument. It, it changes the timbre. It, it changes everything about it. The rooms that, that these scores were played and composed and recorded in really give weight to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It gives this kind of sense of ambition to, to Rustin. And then each of these rooms adds personality to the film, I think. Yeah, I agree. Our music editor, Joe DeBeezy, uh, really did a good job of finding reverbs in, in rooms that were compatible with what the room sound was that we were working with. Because when you're making a writing a score, you, you essentially send the music dry because the director is going to make those decisions in, in post-production. But uh, I would always send the mixes with a two-track mix. This is how we think it should sound. And after that, it was between George and Joe to, to decide. And I think Joe did a really good job of uh, recreating the rooms similar to what, what we were trying to achieve when we recorded it. But that's, that's really key to uh, something such as Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's gotta be, we've got to believe that the sound is coming out of those rooms. Because so often we hear what's supposed to be music being played in the room. The sound doesn't match the spaces we're looking at. No, and it's that's not. evident. If more people could hear like you, then it would be different. But most people would never notice that. I agree with you. It's a pet peeve of, of mine. So, uh, man, I'm glad that you 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 can check that. That's great. Way down south in Alabama, I got a friend at home dancing salmon. Who's crazy about all the latest dances? Black bottom stops and the new baby Francis. It's, and it happens so rarely and forget music, pop music or whatever, but especially in scores. And sometimes that kind of discordance becomes its own kind of conversation. And we're talking about what, for example, what Morricone was doing. He was, those scores actually started off sounding much smaller. And as he, the movies got bigger, then he changed them. For me, it's adding floors and ceilings, which do something to sound and roots the, that, that sound, that musical sound, so we feel like we're, we're watching something or hearing something that is, and I shudder to use this word, so I'm going to kill you again, organic to what it is that, that the movie has to offer. Organic and auth authentic are, are very important to me. And we try to record in, in rooms that are going to reflect the room. I, I do it almost subconsciously now. When I, when I see the, the, the scenes... I can hear the room. And then I try to write things that match the room that's there. Well, I think it's why I was talking about that cue, the shotgun cue, because the sound of that room fits into what the music we've heard up until that point. You know what I mean? It all feels like it's, it's, it's all part of the same fabric. Back then, everybody recorded in big rooms, though. There was very little multi-tracking going on back then. Or none. <laughs> Well, the 60s, it, it, it started to happen. There was almost almost all the music you listen to, almost none of it is isolated. Uh, the singers are singing in real time with the bands that are playing in real time in very large rooms. And I love that sound. And when, when uh, modern musicians try to play covers, I think that's a detail that they forget about when they do all those overdubs and everything sounds small and controlled that... It won't have that burst because you have to kind of recreate the music in the same way that, that they did it back then. It's something really simple, just the way the bass feels, a double bass feels on the floor. For me, it's, it's, it's one of these things that makes this music feel like it's a living part of the movie. Not only that, but again, 
that when we do hear um, a drum and we do that that kick drum or whatever, it's, we feel it's on the floor, but it also feels like these things that are almost emanating from Byatt when he's on screen. Yeah, well, we use minimal amounts of compression when we record in the modern sound. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. Everybody uses compression. If you, for instance, would take a contemporary record and put it into a digital audio software like Pro Tools or Logic or one of those things, if you look at the waveform of an instrument being played, it's very wide and very wavy, like the one that you used to see. In a lot of modern records, those waves are so compressed that the, the waveform looks like a rectangle. So all of the defining characteristics of music are at the edges. And sometimes it can be out of tune. You know, singer's not so good, player's not so good. So you erase the edges and then the pure tone in the middle is always in tune. When singers are singing, what you notice is you, you lose the definition of the words because there was a period when they started putting words in albums. And the period was right around the time that they started using a lot of compression because you can't really understand what the singers are saying when you use that much compression. And everybody uses compression like it's going out of style and we just try to avoid it. We'll use a little bit of it, but we use very little compression when we record. But you were talking too about vocabulary. And one of the things that is sort of key to these, these films and these scores you've done is the instrumentation is such as until the end of, of Rustin, for example, we're hearing instrumentation and instruments that are pretty much what would have been used at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, those, those instruments are still in use. The instruments that James Brown used, I mean, you can still find them. You know, drum set, electric bass, electric guitar, piano, later on electric piano. Because I've heard all of that music and been lucky enough to have been born in that time. I know what that music is supposed to sound like. And I'm not just worried about the harmonic structure of the song, but I'm worried about the, the sound. I want to create, recreate that sound. The sound is very important to me. But you as a parent, I would even say as, as a producer, that idea of making sure that we hear what a room sounds like and that that room is as, as important as what's being played in it is something that's always been, you've always wanted to maintain that kind of, that presence in your music. I do, certainly. But I think that in, in modern popular music, there are almost no live instruments being used, which negates the need to have that situation. Almost everything is done in a computer. The beats are sampled, or the beats are modules that sample drums. The keyboards are all digital. So it's a completely different environment when you do that. At the end of the movie, there's a song called uh, The Knowing that Lettucey sang. It, it comes in just after Lenny Kravitz's tune, The Road to Freedom. Half of the drums are machine, and then at the end, it's live drums. And the whole idea was to make the machine stuff sound like the sound of the machines, the sound of the snare drum, to match the live drum so that when the transition would occur, the motion of the song would change because there's no way that the machine can sound like a live player. But it's so subtle a difference that people will feel the difference, but they won't know the difference. Well, we feel another difference because you do. My guest is Branford Marsalis. His newest work is the terrific score for George Wolfe's historical drama, Rustin on Netflix. Branford, thank you so much for doing this. Always great talking to you. Always a pleasure. Always great to hear you again, brother. Change the world.
Of course, Brantford Marsalis is not just a Grammy Award-winning jazz musician and pioneer of late-night TV, he's also a film score composer. His newest score is for the film Rustin, now on Netflix. Jazzy past interviews at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. Keep on swinging here with us on The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. There's more to come. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. In his book, Unforgettable, my guest said, I am one of those people who really does walk around with a notebook. If you spend any time with him, you know that he has an eye and an ear for capturing everything around him and is able to make the connections between political, social, and popular culture in a way that no one else does. Uh, since 1985, he has been the host of, uh, let me see if I got it straight here, Weekend Edition Saturday, and his new audio book and book, which is on Scribd. Of course, no one else could connect Tokyo Rose, Bill Vec, The Clash, Bill Curtis, and the awful and awesome power of radio. But my guest, Scott Simon, who is the author and voice of Swing Time for Hitler. Scott G.B., great to talk to you, but we just ran out of time with that very lengthy introduction. <laughs> Have a good I time. I knew you'd pull a Jimmy Kimmel, Matt Damon thing on me. Yes, okay. Golly, there's so much to talk to you about in this book, but in so many ways, it really is about the awesome and awful power of radio. And, and we should say the book is about the rise and power of propaganda in, in World War II, particularly as practiced by um, those working under Joseph Goebbels. But so much of the stuff you've written is about sort of uh, two worlds in collision. Yeah, or more than two worlds in collision. It's interesting because, you know, uh, the Nazis uh, had identified, and Dr. Goebbels and particularly head of propaganda, had identified radio as a very powerful medium. He said it needed to be enlisted for the war. Now, this was all part of their effort because, of course, the Nazis had had banned works by what they called degenerate culture, Picasso, Matisse, Van Gogh. Uh, forgive me, I'm on the treatment with Elvis Mitchell, Van Gogh, uh, Chagall, Kandinsky, other abstract artists and music that they considered to be degenerate, which is jazz and swing. At the same time, when they were preparing some of their own propaganda broadcasts, I think they understood that just beating a polemical drum for Nazi Germany was not going to appeal to Westerners in the United States and the United Kingdom. So they took this music that was banned, which was jazz and swing music, and they performed it with the most reprehensible, anti-Semitic and racist lyrics. I couldn't believe it the first time I heard it. I was in the Imperial War Museum uh, in London. It was a number of years ago. I was, I was actually researching propaganda broadcast, Serb radio propaganda broadcast during the siege of Sarajevo. And I came across these recordings, which are not great in number, because remember, recording technology was very primitive in the early 1940s, and people didn't routinely make a copy of something that was broadcast live on the air. And these songs were absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, firstly, the musicianship was very, very good because they did have some very good jazz musicians in Berlin before the Nazi takeover who had been uh, unable to play the music. And the lyrics were absolutely reprehensible, but there was something intoxicating about listening to it. And I would find myself humming and even singing along to these reprehensible lyrics and also, you know, bouncing my knee because it was uh, tuneful and listenable. In the book, too, you, you get on about your encounters with 
previous following kinds of propaganda, which were much more stentorian and, and lectures. And one hesitates to use the word felicity of Nazi propaganda, but it's also about Goebbels' understanding of the power of art, isn't it? It's, it's him bringing in Leni Riefenstahl to make movies and, and, and bringing in esteemed artists from, from the German musical stage to be part of, of what he wanted to do in Germany. It's somebody who understood the power of popular culture, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Goebbels understood the power of art so much that he prohibited it, that he uh, that he banned it. He knew it could move people. He knew it could reach into people's lives. Around the world, when I'd heard uh, propaganda broadcasts in state radio systems uh, and state television systems, for that matter, in socialist Ethiopia and in the old USSR and in Cuba, they were very polemical and they tended to run the speeches of the authoritarian leader over and over and news broadcasts, I remember in Ethiopia, news, we have to put in air quotes, would, you know, supreme ruler fill in the blank has signed a, a new covenant with supreme ruler of another authoritarian state. And they were on in the background and people listened to them and people even followed them, but didn't pay much attention. And as we learned in the history of the old Soviet Union, even though they weren't playing jazz, uh, there was probably no more popular figure in uh, the Soviet airspace, then Willis Conover and uh, Jazz America. And so jazz became very popular. Similarly, these songs, which were jazz and swing music that had been obviously demented with these racist lyrics, they were not much listened to, near as we can tell, in the United States and the United Kingdom, because, you know, we had the actual music. We could listen to Doris Day. We could listen to Bing Crosby. We could listen to Billy Eckstein. We could hear the actual music uh, without the pops and the whirs of shortwave radio. Now, in Nazi Germany, they had ruled out what was called the People's Receiver, which was a, a state radio receiver. By the way, a point not lost on Orwell when he came to write 1984 following World War II. And their idea was to put one into every German home, which they did. And by special edict, people in Germany had to get rid of their own private receivers. Obviously, a lot of people didn't do that. They hid it in the attic. They hid it in a basement. They, they hid it in a bathtub. And at night, they would often listen to broadcasts from the BBC or Vatican Radio, where they would get even, I think, those people who thought they were very happily living in Nazi Germany. Uh, they could get not just another view of the war, but what they considered to be something closer to the truth about what was going on. And at the same time, they could hear the music of this orchestra called Charlie and His Orchestra. And it was music that they missed, music that they enjoyed, music that, uh, that despite the hateful lyrics, gave them some kind of release during the war. At the same time, Goebbels clearly held that kind of art at, at a distance. He also set up tours, uh, <laughs> exhibitions, just so the German public could see this degenerate art. And what was the response to the German public to the, these exhibitions that he set up? Nothing had ever been more um, uh, more popular. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he set up these exhibits of degenerate art, you know, because they banned anything that was abstract or ambiguous, impressionist, surrealist, uh, avant-garde by the usual suspects, Picasso, Matisse, uh, Chagall, Kandinsky. And then they put them on display, a display of degenerate art in Munich in 1937 to warn people 
warn people about, you know, what the effect of that art could be. So they not only put up the art, but they put slogans over them that said things like revelations of the Jewish racial soul and nature is seen by sick minds. Uh, the exhibit traveled to Berlin and Leipzig and Vienna, and more than two million people saw it. They waited hours uh, to become revolted uh, to go in there and enjoy it. You know, nothing the the verdant Nazi farmlands didn't uh, that were painted by some other artists at that particular time didn't draw nearly as many people. It really is almost, in some ways, about technology superseding the imaginative powers of people and that awful moment where Goebbels was actually in touch. You had somebody who was in touch with, who understood the implications of a pop art, who understood how people reacted to to radio and to film. And what's fascinating about hearing these pieces is there's the awfulness of both the lyrics and the vocal performance aside, there is an intimacy in it. There's an understanding of if you underplay, people might be caught off guard by it. As I don't have to tell you, that is the power of, of radio. You know, it flies through the air, it's unseen, it surrounds us, it seeps into us. It conveys intimacy and personality, which is why Goebbels saw it as the... Um, this is a paraphrase, but I think the quote is pretty exact, the most uh, most important instrument of, of, of mass influence anywhere, particularly because these broadcasts weren't introduced in there, you know, even to a careful listener, you know, you would, where's that coming from? I wonder what this is. If you were in the West, obviously it could have some effect on people who uh, were listening. Look, I, as you know, my family and, and my wife Caroline is French, and we were in France this summer, and we were walking our dog along Normandy Beach, of all things, and I was singing along, I'm afraid, to the song that where the refrain is, German submarines, which, you know, it's like, why are all, why are all the ships always sinking and blinking? I mean, you know, just terrible lyrics about uh, Winston Churchill, who enjoyed the songs, by the way, about himself, and certainly about Jews. And so there I am. We're walking our dog and I'm singing German submarines. And my wife, Caroline, looks at me and says, my God, bloody hell, are you singing what I think you're singing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid I was singing. And that's, you know, that's, I think, the most they were hoping for, that it would it would stick into minds, that, uh, that people wouldn't be able to get rid of it. And uh, it would have a kind of insurrectionary influence around those people who were predisposed to believe anti-Semitic and racist lyrics. It's the truth. My guest who also conveys intimacy and flies through the air, Scott Simon, his ebook and audio book on Scrib is Swing Time for Hitler. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash treatment. So much of what you do, you said several words, but I think it's sort of like how two worlds can exist simultaneously. And so often the people in these worlds don't actually see. I mean, there's so much contempt in the vocal performance and in presumably uh, William Joyce's lyrics, as you mentioned, they, it took a committee to write songs this bad. Exactly. They, I mean, the, the, the people who were writing the lyrics near as we could tell, by the way, included William Joyce, who, of course, became known under the moniker Lord Haw Haw during World War II. You know, and a man not known for his uh, poetic lyricism, let me put it that way. The lyrics obviously mostly made the point of what they what they wanted to do, where they would, uh, they would poke fun at Winston Churchill. The Germans are driving me crazy. I thought I had brains, but they shattered my planes. Th these are the kind of lyrics that they uh, that they wrote. And it is the only reason, interestingly, that we have any recordings 
because uh, British intelligence thought, look, they must be using the sound to send signals <laughs> to their spies overseas because they're so ridiculous. I mean, who would listen to this kind of music? As it turns out, near as we can tell, all these years after the war, uh, they were not. But that's why we have 21 and a half uh, recordings that were made because, as I said, uh, recording technology was much more primitive in those days and people did not routinely make uh, recordings. And even for the people at MI5 and MI6 who were reviewing the lyrics and on the alert for some kind of clues, it was easier just to get a, you know, a transcript that was made by a, by a stenographer. It must be noted, Winston Churchill loved the songs about him where they would, you know, they would kid him about, kid him is hardly the word. They would lambast him for being overweight. They would lambast him for being a drunkard. I just find myself thinking that so much of this book and this essay is you, the power of radio, the power of intimacy, the power of conversational thought, um, the understanding that what goes out is received in so many different ways, that the point from which it emanates to when it connects to the planet as it floats back down to Earth is something entirely different than, than what was imagined. The power of popular art, how that can be perverted or even misunderstood. And this ambition, because on both sides of it, both in the jazz world and the world of popular culture here in America, from which this stuff came, and the other side where all this awful propaganda was propagated, um, there is ambition on both sides, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, there, there is. And I, you know, that's one of the many things that really reached into me from the first moment that I that I heard those songs a number of years ago, and I said to myself, I've got to do something with this uh, someday, because it absolutely just spoke to a lot of what my so-called career has been about. You know, yeah, the power of broadcasting, the relationship that you begin to develop or try to develop with an audience. It is not uncommon for someone to come up to me and say something, you know, meaning only to be nice. I'll never forget the time you said such and such and get it absolutely wrong. You know, but I don't correct them because <laughs> that's what they heard. That's what they meant to them. There are some times I will correct them if they say something that was that was really obnoxious. But we have to live with the fact that, you know, that we let go of something that flies through the air and it's received by people who might take it into their lives in a, in a totally different way. There's really no good way of predicting that. The best that I think we can hope for is to, you know, for the most part, communicate successfully and to be able to reveal enough of ourselves so that people respond to it and, and feel a kind of relationship going. That's why the Charlie and his orchestra broadcast really got to me, because I think they were trying to use the power of a medium that was new and newly minted and shiny and had a lot of promise. People used to say, this is the great thing about radio. You know, people can communicate around the globe. Somebody who was growing up in the middle of the Sahara can communicate with somebody who was growing up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, at the same time. They can find out what they have in common. And of course, that has turned out not to be the case for, for really any of the broad-based mediums and platforms that we have today, isn't it? It's, uh, it's giving people a way to find out the ways in which we are divided from each other, to kind of rub raw at those divisions and those separations. And that... And that and that can absolutely distress me. But I, you know, radio was the first live mass medium, and we didn't use the word live the way we do now uh, until radio came along, because it wasn't really possible to listen to something 
across the ocean or even across town as it actually happened uh, until radio was invented. And we can sometimes forget what a powerful thing that was for people to be able to, uh, to share that. And this was a power that Charlie and his orchestra was, was consciously seeking to misuse and tried. We, we are fortunate to be able to look back on it and listen to it and to be able to, uh, to laugh now. Well, my guest, who thankfully didn't correct me for saying something obnoxious and getting it wrong, is Scott Simon. His new audiobook and ebook, of course, Swing Time you're never obnoxious. for Hitler. And you, never, you never get anything wrong. You just give us another slant. Okay. Well, I should probably say at this point, too, as long as you're looking for another slant to add to things, I should say that at this point in my life, my entire career and so many of the good things that, that have happened to me have been because of my association and relationship with you. And I just wanted to take a moment here to thank you oh, for all that, Scott. Elvis, thank you. That's so kind of you to say. And uh, now I feel that I've amounted to something. Scott Simon, the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday, is also an author. His new ebook is on jazz, Nazis, and propaganda, and is also, of course, an audiobook. It's called Swing Time for Hitler. If you think that sounds scary, stick around for a chilling treat from Nanachka Khan, the director of Totally Killer. Past treats, tricky and otherwise, at kcrw.com slash the treat. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell, and with The Treat, Nanachka Khan, whose new film as director is Totally Killer, on Amazon, on what sent goosebumps through her household. Hi, my name is Nanachka Khan, and this is The Treat. A lot of times people in the horror genre have grown up loving horror movies and it started at an early age and some, a lot of their parents kind of showed them movies and in that genre. And for me, it was completely opposite because my parents, especially my mom, uh, were very superstitious and did not allow anything remotely having to do with the devil in our house. Forget about the devil. Like you couldn't even have like a bird in a cage in a house because she would be like, that's bad luck. No scary movies ever. So the way I would experience that would be to go to my friend's house and when we were all I sort of go over and watch movies and that's when I first got exposed to all of these sort of like the classic 80s slasher Nightmare on Elm Street Friday the 13th Poltergeist Halloween like all that stuff I would have to go over there and consume it at my friend and then come back and lie and just tell my mom she'd be like what did you watch I was like oh I don't I think it was um like a movie called Beaches I mean, definitely the original Halloween, I think, is one of the most terrifying I have movies that I've ever seen. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book. And, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. I, I always forget all of my books. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you have your books or not. Hey, isn't that Devon Graham? I don't think so. I think something in that movie that I think I hadn't seen 
before and you know since I've seen a couple things but the, the way that they were able to have it be scary in the daylight I thought was really amazing you know when Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends are walking home from school that whole section and and Michael Myers is hiding you know behind the hedges and then behind the laundry or whatever and that's a day that's a daytime sequence and I think there's something so chilling and so beautiful and so artfully done about that. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no no, big no. Sex equals death, okay? Number two. I think when you talk about a genre mashup, you can't not talk about Scream, the original Scream in, in 95 and the subsequent franchise, of course. But that original just was mind-blowing in how subversive it was, how intelligent it was, and how it, it didn't sort of speak down to the audience, but it rather assumed the audience knew and came into their movie knowing a lot of things about movies themselves. And I think that really sort of changed the game and, and for a long time and probably forever. But that was something that I really was like, holy, holy moly, they know what they're doing. The idea of now getting to play in that space and, you know, nod to a bunch of these classic, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s films is a real surprise but it's also makes me smile because my mom sadly passed away in 2019 but she would definitely not see this movie it would be the first thing i ever did that she would be like no thank you and she would like burn some persian sage probably come to my house and burn sage after i told her i was doing it director nanachka khan's work spans across animation and live action and her treat the film she couldn't watch explained a lot about her. More explications about the effect and effectiveness of art at kcrw.com slash the treat. The scary, the illuminating, the scandalous, and the inviting elements of the touches of inspiration on the creators of all kinds. It's the treat. Our show ends here, produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilcrest, and helped by Anna Buss and Laura Kandarajan. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Thank you.